Numbers chapter 20. Now, you know what? Go ahead and open there. Put your finger there and turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to read from there first in just a moment. Numbers 20 and Romans 3. Father, to bless our study of the Word tonight. Father in Heaven, again we offer our time to You. We offer our souls to You, our spirits. And we seek to just be filled up. Filled, Father, to overflowing. And may we, Father, also be motivated by the study tonight. Again, not just to be hearers of the Word only, but doers of the Word. As John wrote in the Revelation, to be blessed because we not only hear these words but we heed them as well we apply them we walk them out in our lives spare that that's a hard thing for us to do but not when you reside in us and so we appeal to your power in us father to take these words teach us by them tonight and lead us forward in them i pray in jesus name amen amen well who saw the ten commandments movie. Anyone see the new one that came out? (laughs) My sentiment exactly. It was on two nights. Is this... Is this too loud? Is it all right? Okay. It was on two nights, uh, the week before Easter, Monday night and Tuesday night. I ran two hours both nights. The first night I watched, and it was all right. It wasn't bad. Actually, the first night was pretty close, and, and they even pulled in some historical things that the old Charlton Heston version missed. And so I sat down with great expectation for the second night, because, you know, they get out into the wilderness, and there's the crossing of the Red Sea, and there's all these fantastic, great, cool, biblical things happening. And I had heard that they were going to go into some more things and spend more time in the wilderness I was excited about that and they just went off the deep end and I'll tell you how they went off the deep end the second night they left out the main character the second night God was all but absent in the whole process you have this picture this very humanistic picture of Moses trying to figure his way through the wilderness leading the grumbling the grumbling and complaining that was pretty accurate but Moses standing there before the people and the people coming to Moses and saying which way we don't know which way to go which way are we supposed to go and Moses going uh 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 and there's a little windstorm over here so he goes that must be it that was the Hollywood version of a cloud by day and a fire by night I guess was a little uh, desert windstorm that came up and through the whole thing we see this struggling picture of Moses that I could only compare to possibly Muhammad Because we know historically that the way Muhammad received visions supposedly from Allah was that the visions came in epileptic seizures. When he had fits of insanity. That's when people knew he was getting a vision from God. You never read about that kind of thing in the Bible. People don't receive words from God by freaking out. They hear the Lord. Moses, as we have seen just in our study so far going through the book of Numbers, Moses talked to God on a continual basis. Moses came face to face with God, saw the backside of his glory there at Mount Sinai, walked with the Lord, heard from the Lord, and even when Moses wasn't hearing from the Lord, the fire was there, the cloud was there, God was present, but not in the movie. God was completely absent. Unbelievable, And it just ticked me off. And Cheryl kept, you know, I kept making my comments, and Cheryl kept saying, why don't you just turn it off? Well, I don't want to turn it off. I 
just want to sit here and be angry. Who do I call here? This is just frustrating, you know? Anyway, I'm watching this thing and realizing how, how vastly different the, the human perspective and the divine perspective is. And how clearly and obviously and wonderfully God has worked over time to give us the divine perspective. That's what we have in His Word. We have the divine perspective. Here's what happened, the Lord says. Here's how I dealt with Moses and my people Israel. And there was no question and there was no guesswork. And I submit to you that it's the same today. We don't have to walk in guesswork. We don't have to question. We don't have to constantly be saying, Lord, I just can't hear you. I wish I could hear you. And he's going, well, why don't you try opening my word and you'll hear me. Which is not to say that we don't hear the Father speaking to us spiritually, the Holy Spirit speaking to us in prayer, in other places. But we have the word. And we have no excuse to be a people who would say, I just don't know God's will for my life. Guess what? By being here tonight, you are seeking to know God's will for your life. And you will hear more of God's will for your life just by being in the Word. It is so simple. God doesn't play games with us. It's not guesswork. It's not, oh, we're out in the desert now. Which way, Lord? He has given us everything, Peter says, everything for life and godliness in His Word. We've got it. So it was completely off base, so don't buy the DVD when it comes out. It's a big waste of your time. It's a waste of my time, but at least you know, I got a little mileage out of it tonight. Anyway, we come to a place, and you Bible students know better than, than that perspective. You know that Moses was led. You know that Moses was in conversation with God. But now, tonight, and I'm excited about this, in Numbers chapter 20, we come to a place, a milestone, an end of an era. Some major things will change, will happen tonight for the people of Israel. A couple of things just to jot down or to note if you're taking notes. Number one, we do. We reach a milestone. We'll reach a milestone in this chapter. The children of Israel in chapter 20 return to Kadesh, Barnea, after 39 years of wandering. What? Wait a minute, didn't they just end up out in the wilderness? I mean, it just seems like a few weeks back that they left Sinai and went into the wilderness. Very little is said about the 39 years of wandering. Very little. God doesn't spend a lot of time there. We know they wandered for 39 years. What's amazing to me is that this is a comparatively short section of Scripture, the 39 years of wandering, compared to the rest of this story, a rather long span of time. Listen to this. Only a handful of chapters... In the book of Numbers, and we've covered them now, a handful of chapters cover this 40-year rebellion. While comparatively, half of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first ten chapters of Numbers deal with one year. The vast majority of the Torah deals with one year. Leaving Egypt, coming to Sinai, and receiving the law. Very interesting. Because in God's economy, in God's reasoning, in the way that God works with things, the greater weight, the greater emphasis is not on the sin. It's not on the 39 years of wandering. It's not on the 39 years of being away from the Lord or confused or lost in the wilderness. It's not on that. The greater weight's not on the sin. The greater weight is on the cleansing He provides for the sin. Now, for those of you who came to Jesus late in life, that must be incredibly great news. Because the weight is not on the last 40 years. It's on now. The weight is not on the time in my life where I wandered away from the Lord. The focus of Jesus is on the cleansing He provided me and the life I live in Him now. That's what God's concerned with. That's where God wants me to reside. 
Listen to this. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This... This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over I love that phrase he passed over the sins previously committed. What does that mean? It means even looking back at Israel sins committed sins committed by Abraham Isaac Jacob the twelve sons the people of Israel sins committed by people who believed in God they had faith but man they were sinners and God passed over that sin in his forbearance. In other words he held off the final and divine judgment for those sins that the people should deserve. Why? He was waiting for the cross. Holding off judgment until the payment could be made so that once the payment could be made even Abraham and Isaac and the people pre-cross could be saved by the bloodshed on the cross. That's what Paul's saying there. Verse 26 he says for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain, Paul says, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 39 years wandering in the wilderness was a a 39 year span of working, surviving, trying to get by day by day. That's not what saved them. That's not what saved them. It was faith. And he goes on and he says, where was I? Verse 28. Start there again. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Here's the good news for us. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that would be Jewish people, and the uncircumcised through faith, again the Gentiles, is one. And he says, Paul says, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. That's what God did at Sinai. That's why there's a focus in that one year. So many chapters in the Torah, half of Exodus again, all of Leviticus, ten chapters into Numbers, all of that focused in one place at one time. Why? Because God was establishing the law. Why did God take so much time to establish the law? So that we, through the law, would come to grace. That the law, as you know, well, I'll read it to you, Galatians 2.24, the law is our tutor, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so... Tonight we end up back at Kadesh, right on the border of promise, on the border of promise because that's where God loves to shine. He gives the law to lead us to Christ and once we come to Christ, man, God wants to shine in the promise of your life and not in the past of your life. Not in the years of wondering, but right there on the border of promise as we look forward for our promised land, for the coming of Jesus, we're right there and this is a place where God loves to shine. 
You'll see that, I believe, tonight. So we reach a milestone in this chapter. We come and go ahead and turn back there right now, Numbers chapter 20. We reach a milestone, the end of the wandering. We're on the border of the promised land, about to go in, and things start to kick up and happen, and it gets very exciting from here on out. But the second thing to note as we begin tonight is we also reach a gravestone. A gravestone. Two, actually. For tonight we will read of the deaths of both Moses' sister and brother, Miriam and Aaron. Let's begin. Verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. And that's it. Bye-bye, Miriam. Thanks for playing. She's all done. Now, I don't mean to be offensive to, you know, the death of Miriam. You know, we're all, you know, very saddened by this. But you know what's interesting about it? That's all she gets. There's, you're going to see later in the chapter, Aaron dies. And the people mourn for him for 30 days. Miriam dies and it's just a one-liner. Miriam died there. And they moved on, you know. That's all she gets for it. And I began thinking about this. And considering Miriam's legacy... What is exactly Miriam's legacy? What do we know Miriam for? What do we think about when we consider Miriam? Well, there are a couple things. We know that she kept watch over Moses' little wicker ark. We know that when she was younger, that Moses as a baby was put into that little basket by his mother and put among the reeds in the Nile. When all the babies were being slaughtered by the Pharaoh, the, the males under the age of two, and so Moses was put in that ark. And it's literally called an ark in scripture and kind of sent off down the Nile which is amazing to me because you know what's in the Nile crocodiles you know beasts that would love a tasty little child that were probably full on the bodies of other little children at that very time but Moses is in this ark and goes off and Miriam follows sees Pharaoh's daughter pick up the baby out of the ark claim Moses as her own name him Moses which means out of the water and then Miriam goes up to boldly I might add to Pharaoh's daughter and says hey I know someone who can nurse him for you if you'd like take care of it Pharaoh's daughter says and Miriam takes him right back to mom grace of God is so amazing so wonderful so we know she kept watch over little Moses we also know Miriam was a prophetess a prophetess not to mention the great director of the Red Sea Choir Exodus chapter 15 verse 20 tells us the following Miriam the prophetess Aaron's sister took the timbrel in her hand and when all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing Miriam answered them Sing to the Lord, she sang, for he has highly exalted the horse and his rider. He has hurled into the sea. In Exodus 15, you can read and, and hear that song that she sang. So, watching out for her little brother, she's a prophetess, leading this great choir, this great celebration. We also know that Miriam became green with envy. In fact, the longest story we have about Miriam is her envy of Moses. That's the big one that we get. You may recall it, Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. To the point that Miriam, in punishment, was so green with envy, her skin became white as snow with leprosy. We studied that and looked into those things and considered that a while back. And that legacy, that legacy of Miriam, that story became, is biblically, the big one. That's what Miriam is remembered for. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 8 tells us, Be careful against an infection of leprosy, that you diligently observe and do all according to all that the Levitical priests teach you, 
And as I have commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. That's the legacy. Kind of like the two women in the New Testament. You may have heard their names or recall Euodia and Syntyche. Two ladies, and the only thing we know about Yodia and Syntyche for all history, for the last 2,000 years, is that they didn't get along. How'd you like that to be the reason your name is in the Bible? Yeah, Yodia and Syntyche, please, please, Paul, please, get along in the Lord. And that's all we hear about them. And here we are with Miriam, again, at the end of her life, she has died. And when we look back over her life, the big story, the one that sticks is the leprosy story that her envy led her to leprosy I don't know about you but I would hate to be remembered that way I'd hate for my name to be plastered out there in front of people as a name that is looked down on or made fun of or demeaned I don't know if you're watching the news right now but three weeks back the names Reed Seligman and Colin Finnerty didn't mean anything to America they were just a couple of guys on a lacrosse team at Duke University but if you've been watching the news you know right now that they are being charged with rape of a stripper who came to a party that they were at the whole thing you know it doesn't look good as it is and now these two young men and I don't know if they're innocent and I don't know if they're guilty but their names are splattered in the headlines and even if proven innocent in this it's going to stick for a long time It's going to take those two college-age kids a long time to get free of that. Every time their names are mentioned, it's going to be with rolling eyes. Oh, yeah, that that Colin Finnerty guy. I remember hearing about that in the news. Oh, yeah, yeah. Reed. Reed Seligman. He was one of the other guys that was charged with it. Wasn't that? Oh, boy. Lolling tongues. People looking at these two guys, cutting them down. Gang, this is the beauty of grace. And listen here. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus promises you and I something that I think is absolutely wonderful. New names. New names. Which means everything that you have ever done badly to someone else, everything you've ever been known for in the past in your life, is wiped out because someone will say, Hey, is that Rick Crawford in heaven? No. There's another guy who kind of looks like him, but he, it can't be him. He's got a different name. I love that. I will not be known by my name which is attached to all the sin that I've committed in this world. I will have a new name. It goes further. Revelation chapter 3 verse 12 tells us that we'll bear even more wonderful names. We'll have a new name, but we'll also have written on us the name of God, the name of New Jerusalem, and Jesus' new name as well. The Bible tells us that he has a name on him that nobody knows but himself. A new name that we're going to hear in that kingdom, in that millennium. And that new name, along with New Jerusalem, and the name of God, will be written on us as well. God is taking old identity that is wrapped up in sin, and he's wiping it out, and he's saying it doesn't matter anymore. It's gone. It's history. You're not to worry about, Miriam, the leprosy. Euodia and Syntyche, guess what? Those names mean nothing in the eternal kingdom, because their new names will stand with them as children of God, redeemed, blood-bought, and saved for all eternity. Hallelujah. That is great, great news. People are just going to look at you, look at me, see the names on us, and go, oh, you're with Jesus. You're with Jesus. And by the way, and I love this, the last mention of Miriam's name in Scripture is 
in the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 4, and it says, God speaking, He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. The last we hear of Miriam in the Old Testament, she is placed in a role of leadership, she is given a place of honor, and that's what God does. That's grace. It's as if the Lord has completely forgotten her failure and is focusing only on the fact that she stood out along with Moses and Aaron as great leaders of the people of Israel. Well, Miriam is now gone. Aaron will soon follow. Verse 2. There's no water. There was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. Anyone else getting tired of this? Verse 3, the people thus contended with Moses and spoke, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. When our brothers perished 40 years earlier, when so many were killed in that grand rebellion, Korah and Dathan and Abiram, the rebellion we read of earlier. If only we had perished along with them. Yeah, I don't think they were saying that the day it happened. When the 14,700 people fell in the desert and died there as a plague of the Lord. And they're saying now, boy, if we had just died the same way, that would have been the way to go. Unbelievable. Verse 4. Why then? Hang on. You know, I'm convinced there's a little neon light none of us know about, and it's placed on top of this barn. And someone sneaks out here and turns it on right when the teaching starts so the planes know, go, go! All right. Verse 4. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. And we've heard this before. In fact, go back to chapter 14. Chapter 14 and verse 1. 39 years. This is now the first time the Israelites camped at Kadesh. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. 39 years have now passed. And back in chapter 20, at verse 4, actually verses 2 through 5, they're saying the exact same thing. But it's not the exact same people. This is the offspring of the whiners of the previous generation. These are the ones that were supposed to, after 39 years, be cleansed in the desert, have the sin worked out in the desert, learn to trust the Lord in the desert, so when they came back to Kadesh, ready to go into the promised land, this would be a fighting squad. This would be a rough and ready crew. And here they are doing the exact same thing that their fathers did 40 years before. And that, my friends, is the way of man. Don't judge too harshly because it is a sad and sober commentary on humanity, on the lives that we live, and on the fact that from one generation to the next we repeat what we were taught. 
and I do the things that my father did. And I and you know what? He is not to blame. I stand responsible for my own behavior. But we pass on and we pass on and we pass on generation after generation and we learn that time does not necessarily equal maturity. As a matter of fact, the human condition the human and listen to this, the human condition is the number one reason why evolution is bunk. Because if man truly evolves, we would be in a much better place than we are today in the world. But we don't evolve. Time does not equal maturity. White hair does not automatically indicate wisdom. Proverbs 26.11 says, Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Boy, I hate that verse because I recall things that I did as a teenager and I do them today as an adult. And I think, have I not learned? I'm still doing the same thing I did back then? It's frustrating as we repeat these things in our lives. Proverbs 27, verse 22. Though you pound a fool in mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. I love the Proverbs. You can take a fool and just try and pound it out of him, but it's going to stick. Because a fool is a fool. You know what amazes me? that I can continue to return to these places of sin so easily. But listen, gang, this is why the Christian life is referred to as a walk. As a walk. Because the bottom line is that sin is walked out in the wisdom of God. Not in the wisdom of man, not in the ability of man, not in the maturity or the evolution of man. No, in the wisdom of God, sin is walked out, it's worked out. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. This is what a fool is into, what I think. My ideas, my concept. We talked about this on Sunday. My view of what God is, that's what I want. I want to hear my thoughts. What are your thoughts? You know, honestly, I love you all, but I'm not going to determine the steps of my life on your thoughts. Because I happen to know my own thoughts, and they're not going to be much better. We can pool all our resources and all our intelligence and all our mind, and it's not the best way to live our life. This is His thoughts. His wisdom, which is why Jesus says, Wisdom, Matthew 11:19. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Or another translation puts it this way, Wisdom is proved right by her children. The wisdom of God. As we gain God's wisdom, God's perspective on our lives, it bears fruit. It bears children, literally. And it vindicates that wisdom. And we begin to see a change in our lives. And it's not a change that we wrought, gang. It's a change that God wrought in us as we walk with Him. He drives out the sin and He fills us with wisdom. Wisdom is vindicated vindicated by her deeds. Well, speaking of deeds, again, we're back back to Numbers 20. 39 years later, notice what Aaron and Moses are still doing after 40 years. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron came into the presence of the assembly from the, to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And there is our flat-nosed prophet once again falling on his face before God. The people complain, the people whine, the people whimper, and Moses prays. And I love that. That's where we need to go. Now you might say, yeah, but it's hard, Rick. I'm not Moses. I am no Aaron. I don't live with that degree of prayerful humility. When someone gets up in my face, when someone complains against me, the last thing I do is pray, welcome to my club. I rail. I get frustrated. I gossip. I slander. 
Moses falls on his face and prays. And I see these examples, and I think, I, I would love to be like Moses, but I'm not Moses. Not even close. Well, don't get too far ahead of yourself. Watch what Moses does. Verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. Listen very carefully to what God just said. Because previously, God told Moses, I want you to take your rod and strike the rock for it to give out water. And he did that, and it did. Now this is the second time, second water from the rock. And this time God says, speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So he says, speak to the rock. Now, I submit to you that God knows something of Moses' heart. And I think God already is seeing Moses has had it. He's seeing Moses get a little red in the face. He knows Moses' ire is up, that Moses is getting angry. And so God says, Moses, you don't need to be striking anything right now. Speak to the rock. Just talk to it. Use your voice, speak it, it will yield water. And you bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation there be drink. Verse 9, So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said, not to the rock, but to the people, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? <laughs> He's getting all up in their face, which is, again, now I'm feeling a little better. This is me. Thank you, Moses, for being like me for a change. Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the, wa- the rock twice with his rod. Bam! Bam! And water came forth abundantly. That's God's grace. Moses did it the wrong way. God is still providing the water for the children. And the congregation and their beasts drank. Verse 12, But the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Listen to this, Because you have not believed me. To treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. For everything else that's happened over 40 years of traveling, Moses in one instance, just like that, lost the promised land. His passport revoked. He and Aaron at this point, they're done. They are not going any further. And verse 13 says, Those were the waters of Meribah. Because the sons of Israel contended, that's what Meribah means, it means to contend with. And the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. God's response is perfect. There's no anger. There's no railing judgment. All we see is compassion. And I ask the question, why is this contention different than previous contention? Why suddenly is God being merciful and gentle and kind in this instance where he wasn't in previous instances? And I studied this, and I looked into it, and I prayed about it and considered it. And the answer is very simple. I don't know. I have no idea. Why, what makes this so unique, such a different situation? I do know this. God understands the heart of man. He reads us like children's books. That's how easy we are to read. Like a children's book. See Rick run. I mean, that's pretty much it. <laughs> and he gets us. And because he gets us, and because the Father created us and loves us and knows us better than we know ourselves, he knows exactly what we need when we need it. He knows when we need discipline. He knows when we need some severe judgment. And he knows when we just need water. 
when we're just thirsty when we can't even help ourselves we're just parched and God says I know I understand I get your railing at me I get your frustration with me let me just provide some water for you water by the way is always a picture of the Holy Spirit in the Bible so God says let me just provide some more of my spirit when you're angry when you're frustrated when you're having that hard time the Lord would say I understand that ask me I want to give you more of my spirit which is why Revelation 19, 1 and 2 says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. Moses and Aaron, on the other hand, despite their humble prayer, do not respond well and they are banned. The Deliverer, the Deliverer and the High Priest do not go into the Promised Land. Why? Why is their punishment so severe in this place? You're going to have to wait till Sunday to find out. We're going to come back to it and talk about it then. Verse 14. From Kadesh, Moses then sent, and I know you hate that, Spencer. It kind of tickles me to do that to you, though. <laughs> okay. Well, you want to do the message on Sunday? No. Uh, verse 14. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. This is important. Don't miss this. The king of Edom. And Moses wrote to this king of Edom and says, Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. The angel, by the way, I think it's Jesus. I do. The word angel there, it just it just means a messenger. He sent one. And we've seen these Christophanies, these appearances of Jesus before. And I think Jesus led them right out of there. We'll see that again. But he says, an angel led us out. And he says, now behold, O king of Edom. Remember he's talking to the king of Edom. Now behold, we're at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please, let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway not uh, turning to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. Verse 18. Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through us, or I will come out with the sword against you. What in the world does Edom have against Israel? Read on. Verse 19. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let only me pass through on my feet. Nothing else. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and a strong hand. In other words, he marshaled the troops, gathered up against Israel. And verse 21 says, Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. And there is so much in here that is interesting to me. There's a long-standing history here, a family feud that runs deep back generations, four or five generations back, even further. Bible students, who is the ancestor of Edom? Who do the people of Edom come from? Now you're going to have to think back. Esau. 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 You remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob, whose name was changed to... Israel Esau whose name was changed to Edom 
Edom was the nickname of Esau and eventually was picked up by his people down the line. Edom means red. Why did he get that name red? It was the nickname given to him in Genesis 25 verse 30 on that fateful day when Esau came in famished and sold his birthright to Jacob. He sold him his birthright for some red lentil stew and from that day forward they called him red. That's how he got the name. Esau means hairy, so any way you cut it, it's not good for him. You know? <laughs> red, hairy, hairy, red, whatever. But apparently, the family, here are the Edomites now, over 400 years later, several generations later, apparently the family has been stewing over this ever since. I had to think about that. We need those planes. I appreciate that. Yeah. No, but I'm, just, I'm not souping up this story. This, this is the way it's... it's Alright, simmer down. Let's get back to it. So Jacob, Jacob and Esau are, are brothers. Jacob and Esau, brothers. And now the people of Edom and the Israelites, guess what? They're family. They're brothers. They go back. They have a common ancestor in Isaac. A common ancestor. And guys, listen. The Arab world draws its history from two primary sources today. Esau and Ishmael. Esau and Ishmael are the ancestors of the entire Arab world. That's where they come from. And the animosity and the hatred that began all the way back, Esau against Jacob and Ishmael before him against Isaac, is still at work in the world today. It's still bearing negative, angry, violent, homicide bombing problems for the people of Israel. Turning your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, chapter 1. We're going to, by the way, as you're turning there, we're going to be talking about this on Sunday night in the Revelation study. Even if you don't normally go to the Revelation study, I would encourage you to be there because it's Revelation chapter 12 and it covers the panorama of Israel's history. It's amazing. It's a phenomenal chapter. And in that chapter, you have a very definite answer to the question, why so much anti-Semitism in the world? Why is there anti-Semitism in the world? We're going to talk about that Sunday night. But for here and for now, understand that the Arab world, the Muslim world, the, the vastly much larger world in the Middle East, hates, hates, hates Israel. And it runs all the way back again to Ishmael and to Esau, brothers who hated Isaac, and then after him, Jacob. Well, Malachi chapter 1, in verse 1, says the following. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi... I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? The Lord responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down but we will rebuild, we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And you might read that and say, that's not fair. That's not fair. What Malachi is telling us by the Lord here is that God chose Jacob, chose to love Jacob, but hated Esau. That is not fair. And you know what? By all human accounting, you're right. It's not fair. That is not right. 
that you would pick that would be like me standing up here and saying Corey I have loved but Hannah I have hated I chose to love my first, or better yet swap it out I chose to love my secondborn, Hannah but I have chose to hate my firstborn Corey you'd think I was a terrible father You'd think I was spiteful, that I must have problems, I must have baggage back from my upbringing. Maybe my father loved the other, you know, my brother more than me. You know? What is going on here, and how can God be this way? Our God of perfect justice and mercy will remember. Remember that God is not limited to the human timeline like we are. God is not sitting on the curb of the parade watching the floats go by one at a time. Use this example recently. I think it was in the Revelation study. God is up in the Goodyear blimp watching the entire thing unfold all at once. And God knows ahead of time what the Edomites will be like. He knows that Esau is going to die in his selfishness. He knows Esau through his whole life. Esau gave up his birthright game. He despised his birthright, the Bible tells us. He, he saw it as nothing. And God's going, wait a minute here. Abraham, I said I'm going to bless you, and you had Isaac, and I said I'm going to bless you, and Isaac had two sons, and man, that blessing's flowing straight on down to the firstborn, but the firstborn of Isaac said, nah, I don't want it, really like some red stew. That, that's worth more to me, a bowl of soup is worth more to me than God's birthright. But gang, it snowballs from there, and you will see the Edomites being a thorn in the flesh of Israel through all history. It goes on and on and on. It just doesn't stop. Flip in your Bibles quickly. Romans chapter 9. I say quickly because it gives you a sense that maybe we'll move faster. <laughs> Romans chapter 9. And verse 10. <laughs> I know. I know. Romans chapter 9 verse 10. Paul says, There was Rebecca. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac... Uh, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's own purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, to Rebekah, the older, Esau, will serve the younger, Jacob. Just as it is written, verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so we see Paul answers the question, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? He's asking the same question I just asked. Is that fair? He says, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. But it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God has a perspective, a perfect, merciful perspective that is so far beyond our human understanding that when we read something like Esau I hate, Jacob I love, we go, why? From our little tunnel vision in the timeline of history, we don't get it. But God sees the whole picture. He sees, by the way, the fact that, and by the way, you can check this out, go and do it on your own time, but read the book of Obadiah. The whole entire thing. It's one chapter long. It's a tiny little book of prophecy. And it is all a railing judgment against Edom. Against the Edomites. Why? Because the Edomites in the last days will cause nothing but trouble for Israel. What do you mean the Edomites in the last day? Gang, Edom today is Jordan and northwest Saudi Arabia. 
That's the territory that belonged to the Edomites. Also Moab, which was just slightly north of Edom, right there on the borders of the Promised Land, Jordan and Saudi Arabia, Moab and Edom, and even to this day, to this day, they caused problems for Israel. It just hasn't stopped. The hatred remains. The hatred is still there. By the way, you know the Saudi royal family continues to finance and support families of homicide bombers against Israel. What's amazing is you can have a Saudi prince sitting in a horse race in Kentucky, side by side with Americans, laughing it up, enjoying the horse's run, and the same money that he's winning on the track in America is funneled to suicide bombers going into Israel to attack Jerusalem. We're okay with Saudi Arabia. They're an ally. Edom. And God says, Esau, I have hated God told Abraham back in Genesis 12, Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. His people Israel. Well, more on that Sunday night. But gang, again, and this is just food for thought. Go back now to Numbers chapter 20 and look at verse 21. It says that Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Just the phraseology there, that Israel turned away from him. Sounds like they tucked tail and ran. They just slumped off. Okay, we'll go another way. And they went a completely different direction. It's interesting to me because I didn't think the people of Israel were led by Edom. I thought they were led by a cloud in the day and a fire at night. And who is it that brought them right up to the territory of Edom to march on through? It was the Lord. Now I can't verify this other than as I read this I get this sense. I really wonder... At this point, if Moses said, you know, Lord, I know the fire's here, but they're not letting us go through, so we need to go around another way. And gang, there's a time when God says, no, I I want you to fight. I want you to put up your dukes. I want you to go forward. And you don't worry about whether or not their army's bigger or whether they look tougher than than you do. You go forward. Because this is where I'm leading you. This is where I want you to go. Well, verse 22, Now when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, they came to Mount Hor. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against me, against my command, at the waters of Meribah. So Aaron, by the way, was in on that. It wasn't just Moses. It was both of them together. And it tells us that uh, he, he says, take Aaron, verse 25, and his son Eliezer and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. I, I like that phrase, by the way, gathered to his people. He's going to be gathered to his people. going to be drawn in. Uh, this, this is God's phrase for, for dying. You're going to be gathered to your people. Now think about this, Aaron. We looked at Miriam's legacy. What's Aaron's legacy? Now he's the high priest of Israel, but aside from being the high priest, what incident is Aaron most often remembered for in biblical history? I don't know about you, but when I hear the name of Aaron, I think golden calf. I think about the the faithless one who was up there hammering this molten beast, this idol for the Israelites while his brother was up on the mountain getting the word from the Lord. And yet I love God's words here. He says Aaron's going to be gathered to his people. Aaron's going to be brought in. he's, He's dying. This is it for Aaron. It's time for him to sleep with his fathers, to be gathered with his people. And it makes me wonder who my people are. 
And it's another good reason for getting along in Christian fellowship. Because, gang, you're my people. I'm your people. And we're going to spend all eternity together. We might as well get it right now. And love each other now. But who are your people? Who are you going to be gathered to? When you die, where are you headed? Because it matters who you hang with. It matters who you spend time with. It matters who your people are. And if your people are the fellowship of Christians, I can almost guarantee... Well, I can guarantee, if you're in Christ and you're in the fellowship of Christians, those are the people you're going to be gathered to. In other words, when the rapture happens, you're going to be gathered to your people. But if, if you say, ah, I don't like church. The church is not for me. Those Christians, ah, you know, I, I, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Lord, you know, and I read my Bible, you know, a couple times, you know, a decade. And, and I think that this is, you know, but they're not my people. Well, then you may be gathered to an entirely different group of people. Verse 25, reading on. Uh, he, he says, or verse 27, sorry. And so Moses did just as the Lord had commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. After Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. And then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. Verse 29, when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. Now this is interesting to me. Before Aaron dies, before he passes away, God says, I want you to take him up on the mountain, bring Eliezer his son, and you take the high priestly robes off of Aaron, and you put them onto Eliezer. Couldn't we have waited till after the funeral, Lord? I mean, let Aaron at least die in his dignity? But see, God's way is very clear here. Aaron's job was done. And before Aaron was even a day in the grave, the mantle was passed along to Aaron, or to Eliezer. Eliezer is now wearing it, Aaron's not. Which reminds me of something. If you want to see how important you are, take your finger, dip it in a bucket of water. You've probably heard this. And when you pull it out, see how fast it fills up. Because that's us. We think we're so important, and yet when God removes us from a situation, it's amazing how quickly the hole is filled. How quickly God takes care of it. And how little really, how little we are in terms of importance to the whole thing. What's wonderful, what's wonderful is that God uses us at all. That He wants to engage us in His plans. That He wants us to be involved accomplishing His work. But again, He's going to accomplish His work with or without me. He's going to do His business. But he does involve me. I love what Mark Hall, the uh, lead singer of Casting Crowns, once said. He said, God doesn't need me. He wants me. He doesn't need me, but he wants me. He doesn't need me to be here tonight teaching you, but he wants me to. He doesn't need you to be here in the fellowship, worshiping, studying, but he wants you. He doesn't need us to make a massive imprint of change on North Whidbey Island and the surrounding areas, calling out the name of Jesus, offering salvation by the name of Jesus throughout this region. He doesn't need us to accomplish that, but He wants us to. He wants us to. Love that about the Lord. And by the way, one other thing. The book of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, tells us that every priest of Israel died and was replaced. Each one, priest after priest after priest, died. And a new priest stepped up and took over the role. But Jesus, the high priest of our confession, never dies. He is always the high priest, which means from generation to generation, guess what? My grandfather's Lord, Jesus Christ, is my Lord, Jesus Christ. Will be the Lord over my son Hayden in his generation. 
my grandchildren, as long as God tarries and allows time to go forward, Jesus is the only high priest, the same high priest, yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Well, coming to Numbers chapter 21.